play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, drag queen and actor Ben De La Creme, who is described on her Facebook page as sweet as pie and sharp as cheddar. Ben De La Creme competed on season six of RuPaul's Drag Race and the third season of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. Now, when in drag, she is the terminally delightful Ben De La Creme, who usually goes by Dela. And without the wig and the makeup, it's Ben. My interview was with Ben. I know people hate this, so I don't. You can say no if you don't want to, but I feel like whenever I have people on who are singers and I'm like, sing a little bit, they're like, no. Uh, but since <laughs> since I can't afford to play anything from RuPaul's Drag Race, we can't oh, yeah. get it. Could you give a little bit of Ben de la Creme for people who aren't familiar with the character? Oh sure, uh, man. It's sometimes hard to step into it when I'm not actually dressed, but absolutely, I can speak as her for a little while. Well, let's see. I uh, am just generally uh, sort of excited to be here. And, you know, I value a sense of effervescence and making sure that all of those around me are having a very good time, whether they want to or not. Ben shares the delightfully trashy snack his mom used to lovingly prepare for him. In my mind, it's so disgusting that I can't really remember loving it, but I must have. And he shares the delightfully trashy snack his dear friend, drag queen Jinx Monsoon, can't live without. And Ben is a Seattleite now, but he is from Connecticut. And he says he misses the Chinese food of the Northeast. It's like the really low-brow, super-Americanized, like, little yes. takeout-only shop on the corner that always, like, has the best lo mein. Notice he said lo mein, not chow mein. So what is the difference? Well, we're going to find out as we discuss the regional differences between East Coast, Midwest, and West Coast American-style Chinese food. If you have moved across the country and you miss the Chinese food that you grew up with, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Today's Chinese food expertise comes from Jennifer Aitley, who was actually a guest on the very first episode of Your Last Meal. If you recall, she was the one that taught us the behind-the-scenes Hollywood secret about why characters on TV shows and movies seem to always be eating Chinese food directly out of the red and white Chinese food container. She's also the author of one of my favorite nonfiction food books, The Fortune Cookie Chronicles. And I consult with the lovely Xiao Ching Chow. She's the author of the cookbook Chinese Soul Food. She's a member of the James Beard Foundation Book Awards Committee. And she grew up working in her parents' Chinese restaurant in Columbus, Missouri. Cashew chicken, sweet and sour pork. Eventually, we served things like crab rangoon, which is the cream cheese wontons. Foods that we didn't recognize as Chinese food, but that was the customer demand. All that coming up. But first, my conversation with Ben slash Ben de la Creme. So how did you get into drag? Wow. Uh, well, it's been a long development. Drag is so popular right now that a lot of people are like discovering it and they're like, oh, I'd like to try that because it's something they're seeing. Whereas like I was a little kid growing up in the country in Connecticut who just 
was drawn to makeup. I would wrap towels around myself as a dress. I mean, I was just sort of obsessed with these female figures in pop culture, but really much more so the pop culture of like mid-century because that's what me and my parents watched was old movie musicals and like Ann Miller was like super exciting to me. So uh, so it kind of started there. And I mean, I, as a young teenager would like steal makeup from the local drugstore and like put it all on in my bathroom alone and then wipe it all off and I sort of set foot in public in drag you know in my teen years for Halloween which uh was very weird for people like trick-or-treating in the middle of rural Connecticut (laughs) when Ben moved to Chicago for college he started competing in amateur drag competitions and at the time my drag character and expression was really different you know I was like a pretty like angry punk kid like I had a lot of piercings and whatever and so my drag persona was a reflection of that her name was Tina Angst and she was (laughs) um you know it was very sort of like punk riot girl whatever and as I continued to perform in the community I realized that sort of this anger that I had about not fitting into the larger culture I mean a lot of that also came from feeling like I didn't fit into the gay culture. I mean, at the time, drag was stigmatized in the gay communities as well, you know? I mean, they enjoyed the the performance, but offstage, if you were a drag queen, you were undateable. Eventually, Tina Angst fizzled out and was replaced with her exact opposite. Ben de la Creme is an effervescent, hopelessly optimistic, maternal, sparkly, mid-century, vintage, va 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 of a hostess with the mostess. And where did this character come from? Like, did you, did, were there people in your lives that you're like, I'm going to pull this from this person, this from this person, and and even the whole look? Like, how do you yeah. form an entire person? Well, you know, it's, I mean, I had a whole lifetime to do it. So yeah. it was gradual and it drew from uh, a lot of sources. I think you can see a lot of Ann Miller actually in uh, what she looks like, a dash of um, uh, Ann Margaret, all the Anns. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, she's so high camp, she's not really based in reality in many ways. Uh, she's really influenced by, you know, the the female archetypes from old Warner Brothers cartoons and a lot of Christine Taylor as Marsha Brady uh, is a, like a, there's a touch in there. There's some Jerry Blank uh, from Strangers with Candy. Yes. OK, so now that you've gotten to know Ben and Dela a little bit, we can get to the food talk. And there was so much good food talk. So you said as a kid. You did not eat very healthy, that you were fed garbage by your parents. Uh, Talk about the snack that your mom used to make you. Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know where this came from because I've never heard about it at any other time. But one of my mom's favorite treats was a butter and sugar sandwich, (laughs) which was, you know, that kind of processed white bread out of a bag. Squishy bread. Very squishy. And uh, yeah, you would spread butter on that. Was butter. it butter or margarine? No, it was butter. Okay. I mean, so, you know, classy. Have some respect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my grandmother's jam was margarine. My mom was all about butter. So yeah, room temperature butter spread over the soft bread and then just a generous portion of white sugar dumped on top of it. Then another <laughs> piece of bread and then you eat it. Did end. you love that? I mean... In my mind, it's so disgusting that I can't yeah. really remember loving it, but I must have. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine anything that a small child would like more than that. But Yeah. <laughs> so as an adult, you have no 
kind of, oh, I want to just have that thing one time. It's like a little treat for me. Oh, no, no, no. That sounds, <laughs> there are definitely foods that are nostalgic for me and that is not one of them. I grew up in a house where we were not allowed to have white bread. I would beg for Wonder Bread. We couldn't put any sugar in our cereal and we use this weird kind of non-fat margarine instead of butter. So the idea that an actual parent, a figure of authority would willingly give this to a child, it baffles my current brain. And it has my six-year-old brain saying things like, lucky, no fair. Were you allowed to eat this way, Aaron Mason? Oh, no, not at all. No white bread. All wheat. Boring. Uh, I put a post up on my Facebook page asking people to share the junky foods that their parents serve them. Uh, and now I'm jealous of half of America because everyone ate disgusting things. So this white bread with butter and sugar was not unpopular. Uh, there was a lot of cinnamon toast, which I remember people eating when I was a kid. Uh, but there were some real gems out there. A woman named Claire was fed potato chips, margarine, and tomato sauce on white bread, which I have to admit sounds really good and I don't even smoke weed. Uh, Kira, she ate chopped olives mixed with mayonnaise on white bread. This was another popular one I've never heard of was white rice with butter and sugar. So a different version of Vendela Cremes. Fried bologna and peanut butter sandwiches. These are just like pregnant slash stoner foods. Maybe all these parents were just high in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, a lot of people ate peanut butter and brown sugar sandwiches. And this is just this is just lazy parenting. Maybe this parent thought that her son was a hummingbird because JD says his mom would just give him water mixed with sugar in a bowl. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's just kind of sad. It's kind of almost like you could call CPS on this. And this one is very interesting. Joey says that uh, he would pack soda crackers, so like saltines, into a coffee cup. You would let the crackers soak up the coffee for a minute, and then it would become sort of like a pudding. Oh, no. (laughs) Somebody check on Joey. (laughs) And Bradford, who was fed peanut butter and Miracle Whip sandwiches. So I am part horrified and just oh so jealous uh, because I had to wait till I was an adult to come up with my own weird flavor combinations. One of my favorite things that you told me is that you said the saddest thing to me as a kid was that bones don't taste like what I always thought bones would taste like based on how Pluto ate them in Disney cartoons. Yeah. And I have an obsession with cartoon food. So oh my God, yeah. explain this. Is this like where they put the whole meat in and then blah, 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 pull no, the bones so out? So it's like, so, uh, so Pluto, because for some reason he was not anthropomorphized and Goofy was, which makes no sense. Uh, Pluto. Yeah, I never thought about that. They he could be was in the an same actual scene. dog. They're both dogs and one's like <laughs> a human dog that talks and the other is just a dog. Um but Pluto was always just, there was never meat. He was just gnawing on these big, like, pure white, perfectly shaped bones. Uh-huh. And he was sort of, he would, like, gnaw on them, but sometimes it would, like, he would, like, bite into them, kind of like you would a candy cane. And then other times he would, like, suck on them and they'd get smaller like a candy cane. And I always kind of, I think I thought that they would taste something like, you know, do you remember Fun Dip? Oh, yes. You know how just that stick, it was like not as sweet as other candy. I think I thought that bones would taste something like in that zone. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember it being this food that was not a real food that just seemed so appealing to me and was just unobtainable. So if you had chicken for dinner, would you try to gnaw on the bone? No, I definitely remember like uh, being disappointed by like ribs. Though, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed a rib, but once you get to the end of it, you're just 
done when yeah. you get to the bone. That this was bone a, does not taste like fun dip. Really a bummer. <laughs> Disney actually did a lot of stuff with food because one of my strong childhood memories is watching Fantasia. And the only thing I remember from the whole movie is that it was whoever Mickey Mouse was in that his family was very poor. And they all had to share this one bean. Slice the bean and remember it's transparent. Yes. The little transparent paper, yes. tissue paper slices. And yeah, the yeah, way yeah. that they sliced it was, it was almost like, what do they call it? ASMR. Yes. Now, it's like every time they slice it, I was like, oh, God, slice it again. That makes my <laughs> brain feel good. I loved it. Oh my God. The other thing uh, that I was also really into was the cartoon cheese that mice would always eat. Yeah, I never really liked cheese that much growing up. I, I'm like not a big cheddar fan or anything like that, which I think is what that cheese was always supposed to be. But then like later in life, tasting like Gouda, like an unsmoked Gouda some of those like really pungent cheeses for the first time, I was like, oh, this is what I thought that would taste like when I was a kid. <laughs> I was into the way that sandwiches and hamburgers were eaten in cartoons like Yogi Bear. When he'd take a bite, I, can hard- I can't even describe it. It was like this perfect circular bite. Mm-hmm. Nothing tastes as good in real life as it looked to taste in a cartoon. Yes. The pancake stacks <sighs> with the butter melting down the sides mm-hmm. and the cascading of the syrup, like no pancake tastes that good. Mm-mm. Great. Now I want a stack of cartoon pancakes. And you can't eat cartoon pancakes. Thanks a lot, me. Well, instead of getting mad at myself, I'm going to just take a break here. My therapist said to be kind to myself. Actually, she said it in this voice. Just be kind to yourself. It's kind of annoying. Anyway, enough about my therapy. We'll get back to Ben right after this break. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Well, let's talk about your last meal. What would you choose to eat if it was your last meal on earth? Wow. Uh, well, it's a hodgepodge. It's not really things that go together, but they're and they're all kind of foods that I think I am nostalgic about. 
lobster, a full lobster mm. for sure. Uh, you know, I grew up in New England and that was like the special summer thing was when you had your big lobster dinner in the summer. I would go to my grandmother's house and she lived on the on the water and we'd do like the big lobster dinner. So I think I'd do a lobster as many courses because, you know, it's my last meal. You deserve it. Um, <laughs> uh, I would do pork lo mein, but specifically the kind that I have never had it outside of the northeast it's like the way that chinese food tastes in new york you know what i mean and it's like i've never had a lo mein noodle anywhere other than in that region of the country that's like that they don't thick, call it lo mein anywhere kind. else well chow mein when i grew up was a different type of noodle it's like thinner and it has more bite whereas mm. lo mein is like that thick cakey noodle and sometimes oh. i see lo mein on a menu here and i order it and it's that chow mein noodle and i'm so mad about no! it Huh, I want to know now what kind of noodle that is. So a cakey, is it more like udon, like that thick? It's No, it's it's like thicker than a standard spaghetti. Okay. But it's got that cakey quality that udon has. Uh-huh. And it's just, oh, it's so good. Mm. And I do, it's one of those things that when I'm back on the East Coast, I always like, it's like the really kind of like, lowbrow, super Americanized, like little yes. takeout only shop on the corner that always like has the best lo mein. The other thing on the East Coast we don't have here is we just called them crunchies growing up. You'd get that bowl to the table with the duck sauce and it was like, I guess it's kind of like oh, fried yeah. wontons or something. Those little but crunchy little things. Strips. Yeah, little yeah, yeah. strips. I love those when we'd go visit our family in New York. I look forward to crunchies. Yeah. Crunchies and duck sauce. Yeah. So like lobster and pork lo mein are not a good combination, but I definitely feel <laughs> like I'd like want those experiences last. And then the last thing would be. And now a break from our regularly scheduled last meal programming. See? Ben still has to get to his dessert, but we do need to pause and discuss the regional differences between West Coast and East Coast Americanized Chinese food. So if you've moved from New York to California or from Oregon to New Jersey, you might be homesick for the Chinese food that you grew up with. I even got a message from a listener that said the Chinese food in eastern Washington is different than the Chinese food in western Washington. And if you weren't aware that Chinese food has regional differences within the U.S., uh, please consult one of the many chat boards online where people are so angry because that everything, why is everybody so mad? Uh, but they say that their Chinese food is the best Chinese food. And of course, their Chinese food is the right Chinese food. So to be clear, we are talking about American style Chinese food, like beef with broccoli and General Tso's chicken, anything you can get at Panda Express. And specifically, we're going to talk about the difference between lo mein and chow mein. First, I consulted with Xiao Ching Chow. She's the author of the cookbook Chinese Soul Food. When Anthony Bourdain came to Seattle to shoot Parts Unknown, he went to Xiao Ching's house for a dumpling making lesson. I know, I'm jealous of her too. But then you open up her cookbook and you see these super juicy looking dumplings and homemade wrappers, and then you're jealous of Mr. Bourdain. Just jealousy everywhere. So Xiao Ching was born in Taiwan, but she grew up in her parents' Chinese restaurant in Columbus, Missouri. My family immigrated to the States because both of my parents ended up getting graduate degrees at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. But like most immigrant stories, they couldn't do what they did as professionals back in Taipei. So they opened a restaurant. <laughs> they didn't know anything about the restaurant business, but um, they knew that they needed to be entrepreneurs. And we spent probably... 23 years in the restaurant business in Columbia, Missouri. She started folding wontons for the restaurant when she was eight years old and kind of half jokes that her college education was funded by Crab Rangoon. 
much of the menu was Americanized Chinese food. Cashew chicken, the deep fried with the red sauce kind of sweet and sour pork, chow mein and chop suey. And we did get to a point in our business when people would come in and they would ask for crab rangoon, the cream cheese wontons. And because we didn't have it, they literally would turn around and leave. And the other demand was people wanted to have a buffet. So they came in because we did not have a buffet where it was one price and it was all you can eat. They also would turn around and walk out. And it was do or die. We either had to submit to those demands or shut down. We made the decision. It was a tough decision. And my dad, you know, I remember his having this conversation with my mom. If we do this, there's no going back. And sure enough, as soon as we started a buffet, business picked right up. As soon as we served these cream cheese, cream cheese doesn't exist in Chinese cooking. What? Are, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, what is this? We can't even process dairy. Was there a toll, you know, emotionally or psychologically on your family, on your parents? Because it sounds like they're like, Ugh, we don't want to do this. But, you know, it's a business and people today like to talk. You know, it's like I'm doing my passion and I'm cooking my food. They were not cooking their food and doing their passion. <laughs> they were not doing their food at all. Their passion was actually journalism. But they also understood that, you know, the reason we immigrated was they knew that they wanted to make a better life for their family. And in order to do that, they had to make sacrifices. All right. So on to the great East Coast, West Coast noodle debate. East Coast menus tend to offer lo mein and West Coast menus tend to offer chow mein. But is there actually a difference in these dishes? Well, in simplest terms, chow mein is fried. It should be deep fried. The noodles and then the meat and the vegetables and the sauce are ladled on top. So it's like crispy fried? It's crispy. So you, you boil the noodles and then you fry them. Lo mein is just boiled noodles that are then stir-fried with the meat and vegetables. So that's all incorporated together into one dish. The confusion, there's so much confusion, not just regionally, but because of the English language doesn't fully translate Chinese names for these dishes. There's a lot of confusion just in terms. So if you go to a grocery store and look at a packet for chow mein noodles, and they'll have instructions on there. It may not tell you to fry the noodles to make them chow mein. They may interpret that as just stir-fried noodles. So the terms themselves are not used consistently, and that adds to the confusion of the, the regional differences as well. That's interesting because I've ordered chow mein a million times, and I've never once had it fried. It's always been stir fried at all kinds of restaurants all over the place. So I've never had it the way I guess it's supposed to be. One of the things that Ben de la Creme uh, mentioned was that he thinks that the noodles used in lo mein on the East Coast are a different texture and a different width than the ones on the West Coast. Is that something that you've encountered? I think part of that has to do with the suppliers. If there are well-known noodle suppliers in a given region, many of the restaurants will get their noodles and whatever that manufacturer defines as a certain type of noodle is likely what then will appear on menus, right? So folks in businesses in San Francisco, those manufacturers have been there for so long that they're pretty entrenched. And so whatever they offer is what people use. Everything that affects the flavor of a dish or the profile of a dish has to do with the ingredients. So if they're using soy sauces that are made on the East Coast, those soy sauces are going to taste different than soy sauces that are made on the West Coast. 
you know, I think of any type of food, whether it's mac and cheese or cornbread or barbecue, like the, the regional differences can be slight, but there, there are some differences. I asked some of these same questions to Jennifer Aitley, author of The Fortune Cookie Chronicles and producer of the great documentary film, The Search for General Sao. I never know how to say it. Is it Chow? I think it's So. Oh, So? The Search for General So. Or Sao. Who really knows how to pronounce that? It's not a real Chinese thing. And so I spent a good, like, four years of my life <laughs> dedicated to the art of American Chinese food, which I argue is its own distinct cuisine, different from, you know, Chinese Chinese food and putting Korean Chinese food and Indian Chinese food. All of these countries have their own distinct types of Chinese food and are even sort of like even sometimes regional within the countries like with the United States. Yeah. So talking about the difference between East Coast and West Coast Chinese food, is there a difference? Yeah. I mean, I would say actually the, the, the most important difference in East Coast versus West Coast Chinese food is that the little white takeout boxes, their wires are actually oriented in different directions. So, you know, like the little wire handles on those Chinese food? Yeah. They are long on one coast and they are short along the short end on the other coast. The reason why this is even stranger is that it is the same company, Foldpack, that actually makes 66% of all the white takeout containers in the country. But the two coasts have their regional preferences. So where you can kind of see it, in a very subtle way, is you will sometimes see movies where people are eating Chinese food out of a container, and they're supposedly in "quote unquote" New York. But if you have, if you're very shrewd, you can tell those are West Coast Chinese food takeout boxes, and you know that it was actually shot in LA. I haven't even seen a wire in years. Now that you're saying this, the boxes that I get, they don't have any little carrying handle anymore. Um, yes, because you were on the West Coast. They're still a big thing on the East Coast. Jennifer confirms what Xiaoqing said. Technically, in Chinese, chow mein noodles are fried, lo mein noodles are soft. And she says that some of the regional differences have to do with Chinese immigration patterns. She said hundreds of thousands of Cantonese fled China in the mid-1800s because of natural disasters and poverty and war, and many of them came to the west coast of the United States. They immigrated to San Francisco for the gold rush, and men worked in mines, they worked on the railroad, in agriculture, and in factories. But there was a big anti-Chinese sentiment because those were the jobs that Americans wanted. Like what we see now in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment is but a fraction of the visceral, violent hostility that was expressed towards Chinese during that time. Like there were lynchings, there were shootings, there were scalpings. It was incredibly violent. So big Chinese exclusion act that rolled into place from 1880 to 1920. And, you know, as part of that... Um, there was a lot of boycotting of American businesses that hired Chinese people. And as a result, you know, the Chinese had to be forced out of basically working for major employers because those employers didn't want to be boycotted. And so then in many cases, they became entrepreneurs. And so they settled in two areas. One was restaurants and the other one was laundry. You look at it, and you're like, huh, very interesting. Like, why did it end up in those areas? You know, they are basically cooking and cleaning, which are both considered women's work and so not like threatening to American men anymore. So in the 1870s, 80s and 90s, Chinese food started to take off. And many of these new restaurateurs moved east to escape the violence and open Chinese restaurants on the East Coast. And then very separately, you have in the 1970s, you have a bunch of chefs. They're very professional, very high end. They come to New York City 
city and they they open these like fancy fancy Chinese restaurants that are getting you know four or five stars in the New York Times getting a lot of attention and so at that point they are inventing dishes like what is now recognized as General So's chicken Hunan beef these are dishes that are created and innovated upon starting uh, from the East Coast. So, and so a lot of those dishes that were, you know, started sort of like highbrow, but sort of worked their way down, you know, sort of down the food pyramid into much more like casual places are, are stemming out of New York City. Jennifer says there are plenty of subtle differences across the country. Fried rice is darker in the Northeast and it's more yellow in Miami. And she told me about a couple of sandwiches that I have never heard of before. In a particular part of Massachusetts, there is a chow mein sandwich, which is a bun stuffed with so much sauce-covered crispy chow mein noodles that the bun looks like a tiny island on a sea of chow mein. Google image it. It looks like somebody barfed on a plate and put a little bun on top. Hey, want me to work for your restaurant and help you sell your chow mein sandwiches? Then there is something called the St. Paul sandwich, which is native to St. Louis, Missouri. This is egg foo young between two slices of squishy white bread with lettuce and tomato. Although I'm sure Ben de la Creme's mom would put a little sugar and butter on there just to spice it up. All right, so I think we covered this whole regional Chinese food thing. There is nothing that we did not cover. Uh, But after the break, we'll come back with the end of Ben's last meal. He's going to get into his last meal dessert. And my favorite, favorite, favorite story about how his buddy and our buddy, RuPaul's Drag Race winner, Jinx Monsoon, eats like a six-year-old. We'll be right back. So we went on this long, low main journey, and I was rude. I didn't even let Ben finish up his last meal. Ice cream from Harold's, which is my favorite ice cream shop in the country. And I also feel like, you know, the Northeast is like the epicenter of ice cream, and it all gets worse mm-hmm. the further away you get. And it's textural. It's like, it's got this like sort of very slight, like, it sounds gross, but like almost a gumminess uh-huh. to it. And Harold's was always my favorite place growing up. And they have a chocolate pudding ice cream and a banana ice cream. And that combo is my very favorite. Chocolate pudding and banana. So you would eat them together. So it was Mm -hmm. a chocolate banana kind of thing. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds good. So good. Oh. Harold's was started in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1973 by a guy named Steve Harrell. Steve is the one who created the concept of letting the customer choose toppings like candy bars and nuts. And then the ice cream scooper would mix that into their scoop. This is what inspired what Cold Stone Creamery does today. Way to go, Steve. (laughs) Okay, so here's the story that I've been really excited to share with you. There is a town called Provincetown, Massachusetts. And in the summer, it magically transforms into almost a summer camp for gay people. It's a very popular gay vacation spot. And a lot of drag performers go and take up residency for the season and perform all summer long. You spent the summer in Provincetown, which I always think of as Provincetown because I've seen a little too much Dina Martina, who I love. Uh, And you were roommates with Jinx Monsoon. Yes. Another uh, famous drag queen. And Dina and I actually, we share a dressing room in Provincetown. Oh, really? I'm sweating now. This is getting me very (laughs) excited. So I was wondering, like, as roommates... What did you eat together? Did you guys cook together ever? Did you have time? Oh, my God. Jinx's... Oh, she's... Jinx, I love you. Uh, Her eating habits are hilarious to me. (laughs) Jinx eats still like a seven-year-old. So, like, I really try to... I mean, when I'm in one space, I actually have the luxury of grocery shopping. Although, I eat out way too much still because there's so much good food in Provincetown. 
lobster rolls and oysters and stuff. Oh. I mean, it's not a good monetary way. You know, you're going there to make money and you wind up spending a lot. But rosé and oysters on a deck in Provincetown by the beach. That's perfect. That's pretty amazing. Throw in but, some lo mein and it's your last yeah. meal. <laughs> and they do they do have one of those little uh, oh, Chinese do? food places oh, that opened up a few a years heaven. ago. Um, but yeah, so, uh, but when I do grocery shop, I really just try to keep like sort of like fresh veggies and whatever and stuff in the house. But Jinx... <laughs> will come home after her shows. She's such a fan of Easy Mac. In the little cup? The little cup, as if macaroni, as if craft macaroni and cheese were not easy enough. <gasps> they have somehow made it, quote unquote, easier. So she would come home, she'd make Easy Mac, but as if that were not enough, she would put two layers of sliced sandwich cheese on top. And I would say, Jinx, what is sandwich? Like, what kind of cheese is that? And she'd go, sandwich cheese. <laughs> Which I don't know what that means. I guess that means any sort of sliced cheese. I don't know yeah. if it's like a... It, I don't think it was a craft single. But we were one night at, biking home after our shows. And we stopped by the one little convenience store that is open late in Provincetown. It's called Essentials. And uh, we walked in. Jinx wanted some Easy Mac. There was none left on the shelf. So she sort of was dejected and walking away. And then the woman who works at the counter was like, oh, no, 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 come on back here. Led us to the back room, like open the little curtain. Their back storage room had a shelf of Easy Mac <gasps> that said Jinx. Are you serious? <laughs> what? It was all for her? It was, they had a back stock exclusively for Jinx. That's amazing. Yeah. That's when you know you're home. Yeah. It's confirmed. Ben has the best laugh in the entire world. We also, Jinx and I, always do like one big like go out for a full lobster dinner night. And mm-hmm. we usually go with a bunch of other people, all of whom are just horrified to watch us tear apart these lobsters. But that's part of the joy of lobster, yes, right? Like I love... on. Oh, man. I mean, I like that's such a fond memory as a kid of like... Everybody else at the table would give up way sooner. Me and my mom would like hunt down every little tiny morsel of meat in there and like, you know, suck out all the legs. And I mean, we would be eating for another like the same um, the same lobster. We'd be, you know, working on it for another hour after everyone else was done. This is fancy food. You have to find every little last bit. And there's something pleasing. It's like pulling the perfect strip of wallpaper, getting out the piece intact, Uh pulling out the claw. Yes. So satisfying. Yeah. And there's all sorts of little hidden things. Like the where the the legs connect to the abdomen. <laughs> Sounds so gross. Leg bones connected to the yeah. abdomen. And there's like these little what I call them. My boyfriend gets so mad at me when I call them this because he thinks he thinks it's so disgusting. The belly knuckles. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better term, there's like this little. It's where the like, and there's just this tiny, tiny little diamond of meat inside, and it's so hard to get out. But I am like really dedicated to making it happen, and everybody else at the table just sits around and like, you know, stares at us and thinks. I'm we're with disgusting. you. I imagine you have a set of tools and a tool belt, and you have this tweezer to get your your belly knuckle out of there, and you're holding it up to the light, and you're dipping it in butter. Oh yeah, and yeah. there is, and I have zero pride around. I mean, none of this needs to look pretty. Like I am, you know, lobster is a fancy food that I feel perfectly comfortable looking disgusting eating. And the perfect lobster dinner is a lobster, corn on the cob, and Cape Cod potato chips. So before you perform, do you have to make sure that you've eaten? Because once you have all your makeup on, I'm sure you don't want to mess it up eating well, lobster not, claws. It's less the makeup than it is the um, the corsetry and the undergear. Because oh. I always have to plan to eat like about three hours before showtime is usually the sweet spot so that I'm not feeling like heavy and weighed down. And also like, you know, I've had enough time to 
process, shall we say, before I have to corset everything in and, you know, tuck all the goods away. I mean, like, basically, downstairs is inaccessible for the next few hours. So no so, drinking water. Exactly. Okay. You got to really hydrate and eat well enough in advance. It's a planning situation. And that was Ben's last meal. But what about Ben de la Creme? Oh, man. I don't. Oh, man. I have no idea. I guess I don't really think of her as, like, eating. Um, <laughs> but she's such a hostess. I she feel like is. She's a dinner party kind of gal. No, that's for that's definitely true. Although, I mean, she definitely talks about drinking more than eating. Uh, so there would definitely be some cocktails involved at this. You know, I think some classic cocktails, you know, Manhattans or, like, I don't know what that pairs with food-wise. But, you know, there would be some sort of canapé toward the beginning. I mean, I think she'd want to be hosting for yes. that last meal. Yeah. Maybe some some sort of, like, an elaborate one-dish layered casserole of some sort. Maybe an aspic. That was Ben de la Creme's last meal. Ben, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate thank it. It was you. so fun chatting with you. Yeah, it was a blast. I appreciate you having me. Ben de la Creme is wrapping up a run of holiday shows in Seattle with Jinx Monsoon called To Jesus. Thanks for everything. And then they're taking that show on the road to Portland and San Francisco just after the holidays. There may not be tickets left, but you can try. Go to Ben de la Creme's Facebook page for ticket links. Thanks to Jennifer A. Lee, author of The Fortune Cookie Chronicles and producer of the documentary, The Search for General Tso. So, we still don't know. Both the book and the documentary are just so, so, so good. Read and watch them. Oh, and fun fact, Jennifer was a very loud voice in getting the dumpling emoji made. What do you mean? She works in emojis, and there's a process that you have to go through to nominate particular emojis to get through, and part of what she does for a living is that, and the dumpling is, she's basically responsible for the dumpling. Thanks, Jennifer. (laughs) Thanks to Xiao Ching Chow, author of the cookbook Chinese Soul Food. In the back of the book, she has a guilty pleasures chapter where she shares a handful of classic recipes from the restaurant she grew up in, including a recipe for a sauce that is pretty much in like every Chinese food dish. We had a master sauce in our restaurant where it was, you know, a combination of ingredients and we just make bucketfuls of that. Somebody would order, say they would order a beef broccoli or cashew chicken. So my mom was the main cook, so she would grab all the ingredients for that, stir fry that, add a spoonful of the master sauce, thicken it, and then out the door. So everything kind of had the same sauce. (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Any of the dark sauce dishes had the same base. But the ingredients would then change the flavor a bit. So the right. ca- cashew chicken had the same, essentially the same sauce as beef and broccoli. What's in that dark sauce? Uh, for us, it was soy sauce, hoisin sauce, oyster sauce, green onions, a little bit of cooking wine, um, some garlic. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me and theme music by Prom Queen. And this is the last episode of the year. I kind of have that feeling like where you had a substitute teacher and you just got to watch Christmas movies and eat candy. Are you feeling like that, Aaron Mason? I am. I'm optimistic and yet wistful. It's beautiful. Thank you. That was something Ben DeLaCreme would say. But we do have a great lineup going into next year. Uh, let's just name drop a little bit. Uh, Phil Rosenthal, he is the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond and the star of the Netflix show Somebody Feed Phil. Uh, we have Stephen Page from The Bare Naked Ladies, Dory Greenspan, and many, many more. And you can follow along on Instagram. That way we could be together even when we're apart. Isn't that wistful? And the other thing you said, what? Optimistic. Optimistic. Uh, Yeah. I am Your Last Meal Podcast on Instagram. That is where you can watch a nice Jewish girl 
trying to celebrate Christmas with other people's families. Ooh, big thing for me. I made it into my boyfriend's mom's holiday newsletter. Oh. It just came in the mail today. Wow. Picture and words and everything. That's like Facebook official for the pen and paper crowd. For the uh, postmenopausal. Is that rude? (laughs) Maybe I'm not going to be in the newsletter next year. (laughs) (laughs) You blew it. (laughs) Have a great holiday, everybody, whether that means Chinese food in a movie, staying in your pajamas for three days. I don't know why I was just going to say and doing meth. (laughs) That's, That's not appropriate for the holidays or any day. Just say no to drugs. Or if you're hanging out with friends and family and eating delicious things, have a great holiday season. And if you haven't already, just give us a quick five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. And Steve is the guy who invented what is known as the Cold Stone Creamery concept today. I don't There's no such thing as the Cold Stone Creamery concept. <laughs> He's just, <laughs> just making it up. up. <laughs> so uh, for all of you starting the Cold Stone Creamery concept. <laughs> okay, well, now we've got our blooper. Good.